That song direct, uh, rightly directs our attention to the steadfast love of the Lord. We know we'll be held fast, not because we deserve it, not because we've, we've earned it or uh, just are just that, you know, incredibly valuable that God would hold us fast. No, we are confident He holds us fast because His love makes it sure. His steadfast love means that we know no matter what we go through, He will hold us fast. This is helpful to us when we face the challenges of life. This life on earth in a fallen world is indeed full of evil. That evil takes any number of forms. Sometimes it's just blatant acts of evil, and we don't have to read through even the recent news cycle or think too hard to think of acts of evil that have taken place in our country and around the world. We're surrounded by it. That evil can take other forms as well. It can take the form of just reminders of a fallen world. The health difficulties that we face that seemingly come out of nowhere. The natural disasters that bring destruction. All these things remind us that we live in a fallen world, a world full of evil. And when we face that evil, David helps us in this psalm see how we respond. In fact, David himself had faced an evil event in his own life. Jason, before our scripture reading, gave us a little bit of that context. As we look at the heading of this psalm, which is part of the original Hebrew text, this this heading, I think, written by David, that gives us the context of this psalm there before verse 1. And so let's review a little bit what was happening in David's life. First, we notice that he writes it to the chief musician, which is interesting because this isn't just David personally processing his own encounter with evil. What he's written here is actually meant to be instructive and to be a part of the worship of God's people as they remember what will happen to the evildoer and that God's love is steadfast. So this isn't just about Doeg and David. This is about evil and good and how both need to learn from the steadfast love of the Lord. It's a contemplation, some some wise thoughts from David when he had just gone through this evil event. Doeg the Edomite told Saul that David had been at the house of Ahimelech. Ahimelech was a priest. And there's a period of life when David is running from Saul. Saul's trying to kill him, knowing that God has given the kingdom to David rather than to Saul. And so Saul's trying to put David to death, already in evil context. And David's running for his life. Part of that running involved David needing sustenance and help, and so he stopped at the home of Ahimelech the priest in the city of Nob, which at the time was a city of priests. And so David stopped there for sustenance, and Ahimelech helped him and his men, even sending him with Goliath's sword, which by right was David having killed Goliath uh, himself. So Ahimelech sends David on his way and David's men, and they, they go off to another category. But 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 7 sort of highlights to us that Doeg was there in the city of Nob and saw that David stopped there and saw that Ahimelech helped David. And so then in chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, 
It comes up again as Saul is kind of lamenting and mourning that he can't find David and he can't put him down and all of this. Doeg steps forward and betrays the fact that he saw David in Nob. He saw David with Ahimelech. Now, at this point, David has long since left Nob. He's left Ahimelech. So what Doeg is doing is actually just giving Saul a place to kind of work out his anger. This isn't going to help catch David. All this does is give Saul the opportunity to punish those that helped David. And so Saul turns to Doeg in 1 Samuel chapter 22 and says to him, You go and you put to death Ahimelech and the others that live in the city of Nob. And so we read the tragic unfolding. Doeg indeed does take some men, we don't know how many, and he goes to the city of Nob and he puts Ahimelech and his house to death. But he doesn't stop there. He, in fact, goes to the entire city of Nob. We're told in 1 Samuel 22, 84 priests are murdered by Doeg for Saul in light of what he's done and all the women and children. Talk about an act of violence and wickedness and evil, all in the name of Saul's plans to get his revenge on David, to whom God had given the kingdom. And Doeg offers up Ahimelech and the whole city of Nob just to try to make Saul feel better. Evil. And in fact, we don't have to look too far in our own society to see similar acts of evil and murder and violence where we look at these things and we say, why? Such pointless death. Such evil to, after your own agenda, kill and murder and destroy. So David lamenting from this incredible act of violence and evil and terror writes this psalm. And the psalm helps us as we respond to the betrayal of evildoers, to the murder and violence and deceit in a wicked world around us. Psalm 52 helps us understand how to process these things before the Lord and to turn and to trust His steadfast love. So here's our theme as we look at Psalm 52. When betrayed by evildoers, trust in God's steadfast love. When betrayed by evildoers, trust in God's steadfast love. It begins in verses 1 through 5, and interestingly, for a worship song, it's addressed to the evildoer. Now, in the psalm, Doeg is not mentioned by name, and I think David is intentional with that because this is meant to be a song of worship, and so I think Doeg becomes this, you know, kind of type or this figure of all evildoers. So, of course, David has him in mind as he writes, but the point is, as this was used in worship through the years in Israel's history, and even now in our service today, we can think of evildoers in general, not just Doeg. And so it's written to those intent upon doing evil in 1 through 5. And David begins with this question, Why do you boast in evil, O mighty one? And, of course, that phrase mighty one or, or hero is in the evil person's own thinking. 
Right? They, they see their own acts and see themselves as mighty and strong. And certainly Doeg, coming away from a massacre of hundreds of people in the city of Nob, would have seen himself as mighty and strong. Ah, look what I've done in my strength. And David's asking, why do you boast in this evil? Now, the second phrase takes an interesting turn. It says, the goodness of God endures continually. So you have this contrast immediately set up in verse 1 of this psalm. You have this evil man boasting in his works of evil, but then David looks immediately to the goodness, as the New King James says. Your Bible may translate it differently because it's the word chesed. It's a Hebrew word that means steadfast love, faithful love, right? So David immediately looks to the faithful love, the steadfast love of God, and he says God's love endures continually. So whatever the mighty evil one thinks he has done to thwart God's love or God's plan, David immediately says, no, God's love endures continually. Nothing can stop the love of God. So this becomes the opening to the psalm. And we learn, number one today, that God's steadfast love conquers all evil. It does. God's love endures continually. No evil act can stop or thwart or change God's love. And even in response to this evil act, David turns right away to God's love and says, No, God's love has endured. Why do you boast in this evil? Evil does not thwart God's love. Verse 2 further describes the specific evil in this context. And David refers to the tongue of Doeg. The tongue that began the whole thing as Doeg told Saul where David had been. So that Saul would know right where to go to punish those loyal to David. It was his tongue that began that process, his tongue that deceived and lied and betrayed David. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor working deceitfully, hacking and tearing down is the tongue of Doeg or the evil one. Verse 3 continues this description. You love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. So again, he's drawing this contrast. The heart of the evil one is towards evil as opposed to good. They love devouring words, words that destroy, words that eat up. Deceit. Verse 3 ends with a pause, Selah, a pause for reflection. That statement, lying rather than speaking righteousness, just affirms all that we've been learning about this evil one. They're just foundationally opposed to God. It's not about the truth. It's not about speaking what's right. That's a literal translation of that. You love lying rather than speaking what is right. Their words devour and they deceive. The evildoer loves those devouring words. His tongue is deceiving. These descriptions of Doeg are easy to use on any evildoer. In fact, they're rooted in Satan himself. From the beginning, this is exactly how Satan used his words to deceive and destroy. As the New Testament makes clear, Satan is called the liar and a murderer. 
He's about those two things, speaking falsehood and destroying, lying and murdering. And that's exactly what David points out in verses 1 through 5, and it shouldn't surprise us. This is the nature of evil. It's the opposite of God's moral goodness and righteousness. That which lies and murders, deceives and destroys is evil. It's the opposite of God. And so David is making this clear. This is the the path on which this evildoer has set himself. And so verse 5 becomes the logical conclusion for the evildoer. God shall likewise destroy you forever. The one set on destruction will indeed be destroyed by God forever. That one will be taken away and plucked out of the dwelling place, uprooted from the land of the living. The, the verbs of verse 5 are all very graphic. The first one, to destroy, is used of tearing down a wall until there's nothing left. The next, to be taken away, is this quick snatching of something away like a coal from a fire. The third, to be plucked out, is to be torn away from one's dwelling place or tent. Finally, that word being uprooted refers to a tree actually being pulled up from the ground, roots and all. This is the culmination of these verbs, and that being uprooted is, of course, the strongest act of all of them. And then you add to that that it's the context of the land of the living. So this mighty tree, the evil one that thought he had strength, says God will uproot them from the land of the living. God brings an end to all evil and to all who are set on lies and murder. Verse 5 ends with another pause for reflection. God will make everything right. He will destroy all evil. God's steadfast love conquers all evil. Though acts of evil may take place, as David says, God's love endures continually. It is forever. And it guarantees that God will uh, cease and stop all evil. God's love is stronger. His love upholds what is good and abhors what is evil. Romans 12, 9. So David looks to the steadfast love of God, love that conquers all evil, and he hopes in that. It's hard for us to think of something in life that is undefeatable or unbeatable. So many things just are in transition all the time. Records are broken constantly. So I was looking at trackstats.com to try to find the longest-standing record for track and field events. The longest-standing one currently is the women's 800-meter race. The world record remains unbroken for 38 years and 10 months, or 14,186 days. Well, maybe 87 now that it's the next day from when I looked it up. It's the longest-standing world record belonging to Jarmila Kratochvilova whose mark of 1 minute 53 seconds has stood since uh, the 26th of July, 1983, before I was born. So, there's the record. There's the record. And yet, like most track records, it will, at some point, be broken. 
There was also a list on the websites of previous long-standing records that had been broken. There was one that had lasted for 47 years, but now has been broken. There was one that lasted for 50-some years, but now had been broken, right? This is what happens to our greatest feats of strength. Somebody comes along and does better, but not so with God's love. His love conquers all. It is unstoppable, unbeatable. Nothing can overcome God's love. Love has overcome all things, even the evil in your own life. You see, we read of this evildoer, and it's easy to kind of set ourselves up in our righteous seats of judgment and, you know, look at the evildoer and say, yeah, well, how could the evildoer lie and, you know, be selfish and destroy? But the reality is we know from Scripture that before God redeemed us, were we not all in the same position? Were we not evil of hearts ourselves? The answer is we were. Each of us set in our own ways, opposed to God. All of us like sheep, having gone astray, serving our pleasures and lusts and desires in opposition to God. Think of how God's love has conquered that evil in your life. That in His love, He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on a cross, bearing the sins that you have committed, past, present, and future. That He paid for those sins in full, conquered sin and death, rose from the grave. And now, in God's love, He offers us freedom from our sin and guilt by faith in the one who died for us and rose again. And so, friend, God's love can conquer evil in your life if you'll place your faith in Jesus Christ. Have your sins washed away and receive the righteousness of God, freedom from sin's guilt and power. One day, freedom from its presence. This is the way God has conquered evil in our lives in the present. And if you've trusted in Christ as Savior, then you know that your heart has been cleansed. And you know you still have a sin nature and you still battle sin. And God's love endures all the evil acts you continue to commit because the payment of Christ on the cross was made in full. You see, His love conquers your evil. So too, with the evil that we experience... Romans 8 makes clear that nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ if, here's the logic of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, if he didn't spare his son, but, but instead offered his son to redeem us, and to show us his love, won't he with him freely give us all things? Won't He meet our needs? Won't He care for us? Won't He do good, eternal good in our lives? Doesn't His love shown to us through His Son prove that nothing can separate us from His love? The answer is yes. And so Paul's conclusion at the end of chapter 8 is nothing, not, no persecution, no trial, no tribulation, no act of evil. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. God's steadfast love conquers evil. It is loving for God to abhor evil and to crush it. This is helpful for us in our present context. So many today think that love is merely affirmation. 
That, that love is merely just saying, yes, it's going to be okay. What you did is great. Love is not merely affirmation. God's love abhors what is evil and upholds what is good. That's what love is. Romans 12.9 encourages us to show the same kind of love. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Love is not merely affirmation. No, love must punish evil. This is one of the greatest proofs of God's existence in my thinking. The world without God thinks that love is just affirmation and doing good, but you have to understand that falls apart. I can't always just affirm everything. I can't always just give everyone what they want because when we all serve ourselves, that's evil personified. And all of a sudden, we're at war with everyone because nobody wants the same thing. No, true love reflects God's character, His goodness, and also abhors what is evil. Love is not merely affirmation. And so we know that God has punished the evil in our lives on His Son who died for us and rose again. And so to those who reject God's salvation will indeed face His judgment. True love hates what is evil, stops what is evil, and judges what is evil. And God will do exactly that. We know He's promised that He will come again and He will judge all evil evil. He will set all things right. And so, friends, during this life, we live out God's love. We reflect what He's done. When we see evil happen around us, we hope in that future judgment and look to God's love. If you've been betrayed, if you've been deceived, If you've experienced death or murder, if you have experienced disaster, or as you see these things happen around you, even when you commit acts of evil, the first place we look is God's steadfast love. No act of evil can stop His love. It endures continually. This leads us then to verses 6 and 7, where we have a strong transition because now David begins talking to the reader, the righteous. He's been talking to the evildoer, but in verse 6, he turns to the righteous. And as we've been understanding, I need to clarify who the righteous is. Because we understand that all of us have committed acts of evil. You don't have to think very hard in your own life to think of something evil that you've done. A lie, deception, an act of wrong towards someone else. So, we're all evildoers. So, who then are the righteous? Well, in the Psalms, David writes in two big categories. He talks about the wicked and the evildoer, and that is those who are opposed to God, who are not living according to God's covenant. And then you have the righteous, those who are for God and are living according to, in the Old Testament, the Mosaic covenant, faithful to God, trusting God, living in obedience to the law. Well, neither category is, is going to be you know, perfect in that category, but just David often writes in these large, broad terms, black and white, the, the wicked and the righteous. So as we think of the righteous in New Testament terms, the question is, are, are we among the righteous or the wicked? It's an important question for you to ask yourself today. Do I fall into the category of the evildoer? 
or the righteous. It all comes back to whether you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Salvation has always been by faith, as it was for David. The faith to live by God's Mosaic covenant. But for us today, it's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose again. So friend, if you've rejected that offer of salvation in Jesus Christ or you've never placed your faith in Him for salvation, then you fall still in the category of evildoer with God's wrath upon you. If you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, you fall into the category of righteous, not because you've stopped doing things wrong, but because you've been forgiven and you've received the righteousness of God in Christ. Perfect righteousness through Jesus. And so if you've trusted in Christ as Savior, you fall into that category. It does not mean you are sinless. It means you have God's righteousness in Jesus. And so we think about what the righteous do in response to this. He says in verse 6, The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh. Now this is an interesting progression. What is the righteous seeing? The righteous is seeing that God's steadfast love conquers all evil. And so, in this case, it's almost like David is looking forward to the future time when God's righteousness, when God's love will prevail over evil. Now, with David and Doeg, David hadn't seen that yet. He's still on the run. Doeg hasn't been punished for his murderous work in the city of Nob. So that justice is still kind of out there. David has to trust in God's steadfast love in order to say this. And he's, he's looking to the future and saying, when God does set all things right, the righteous will see it. They will fear. So that means there's progression. I'll see what happens. I'll learn something. It'll change my perspective and specifically be one of awe and respect and reverence for God. And then finally, they will laugh. Now, we think of this laughter specifically kind of like mocking the evildoer. Na, 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 we won, you know, kind of a thing. I don't think that's exactly what David has in mind here. The word can be taken a number of ways. I think it refers specifically to a sense of joy. We will rejoice. <laughs> it happened. God conquered all evil. You read in the book of Revelation, for instance, as the angels and the saints who have seen more of God's plan cry from His throne, How long, Lord, will you come judge the earth? And when He does, they rejoice in His justice. That's the sense here. Not so much mocking the evildoer as this laughter of joy in God's justice. Because what does it prove? Verse 7 The evildoer is the one who did not make God his strength. The word strength means place of refuge or place of trust. The evildoer did not trust in the Lord. God was not his trust. What did he trust in instead? The end of verse 7 tells us he trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. The sense there is he's actually looking back at his acts of wickedness and thinking, wow, I've made a pretty good life for myself. I am strong. Look at my track record. Look at the things I've done and accomplished. Who would stand against me? That's kind of the sense when he strengthens himself in his own wickedness or trusts in his own riches. I've built a life for myself. Look at all the possessions I've gained and earned. Look at all that I have. Look at my power. This 
is the trust of the evildoer. And so the righteous one learns that's not where we place our trust. That's not where we place our hope. So number two today, our instruction from this psalm is that God's steadfast love instructs us to trust God alone. Because His love always conquers evil, we trust in nothing else. I don't trust in myself. I don't trust in our riches. I don't trust in our security. I don't trust in our past. You know, what we see as victories. No, we, we trust in His steadfast love. That's the thing that never fails. And this is what the righteous learn. They see, they fear, and they rejoice. We don't trust in ourselves. We don't trust in our own strength. We trust in God's love. The righteous learn from the demise of evil that to trust in God's steadfast love. Every now and then I like to work on little woodworking projects around my home. Uh, I am not a woodworker, so none of it is all that great, but it gets the job done. So the other day I was uh, installing a shelf in our pantry for my wife. She thought, you know what, we could use another shelf in here. Could you do that for me? Sure, I'll install a shelf. And anytime you install a shelf, uh, you want to be sure, well, first of all, that the shelf fits. And so there was plenty of measuring going on uh, as I was working on the shelf. Another crucial thing in a shelf is that it be level, right? A shelf in a pantry, you don't want things sliding off or rolling off and so forth. And so a key tool in uh, Shelving work is a good level, right? This is not the level I used, unfortunately. Uh, I used a different level, a level that is, ironically, not level. (laughs) So when you use a level, there's really only one important concern, that it's actually a level level. (laughs) It has one job to do, and if it's not doing that job, what's the point of having it, right? So... Here I am working on my project with my unlevel level, unbeknownst to me that it is unlevel. And so I'm measuring and I'm testing and so, you know, I've made these brackets for the shelf to sit on and so I, you know, kind of installed one and as I'm installing it, I'm making sure it's level. Okay, sure enough, it's level. And so I measure on one end and I measure on the other end and it's like a half an inch off. What? That means one side is higher than the other side. And I think, well, I, I put the level on that. There's no way it's off. It was level. All right, we'll leave that one alone. I'll do the one on the other side. So we go to the other side, and I put the level on it, and I put the bracket up there and level it off and get everything installed. And I measure the front end, and I measure the back end another half inch off. What? I used the level. Oh, I used the level. So now I began doing some testing on my level, and sure enough, the bubble sits just a little bit to the right. So everything you install has a nice little lean to it, and so I'm kind of wondering how many things in my house are kind of uh, (laughs) tipped, tipped to one side. I don't know. For whatever reason, I did not throw the level away. I still own it. It's at home. I don't know why. I need to throw that in the trash, because if it's an unlevel level, it has no purpose, does it? It's just a stick. Right? You can play baseball with it or something. I don't know. <laughs> so often in life, we put our trust in the wrong things. Unlevel levels. 
We look to our riches. We look to our strength. We look to our past and the things we've accomplished. We look to our feelings and the way we feel things are going. We look all sorts of places and we place our trust in the wrong things, unlevel levels. But in light of the strength of God's love, we see from Psalm 52 that His love is always worthy of our trust. We trust not in ourselves, we trust in God's love alone. How do we tell then what we are trusting? Well, here's a question. Where do you turn when the threats of life pop up? The what-ifs. What if this happens? Or what if this happens? Or what if this goes this way? Where does then your mind go? And so often, the first place we turn is we think, well, I've got enough in my bank account, so we should be okay to get through it. Well, I figured out this kind of thing in the past, so I'm sure I can figure this one out as well. Well, I'm a good planner, and so we'll just plan for every possibility, every what if. I'll I'll make plans. So if this happens, I'm going to do this, 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 and this. If this happens, I've got this ready, and this ready, and this ready. And so we trust our plans to get us through the what ifs of life. Or maybe we trust our connections. Well, I know a guy. I know a guy who could help me with that or could do this. I'll just give him a call and he'll come and help me out. Or we trust our own strength. I can do it. I got this. I've lived this many years. I can handle another problem, whatever it is that comes up. But then the question is, what if those things fail? Do we respond with despair? Do we respond with worry? Do we respond with discouragement? Often that reveals then in our heart what it is we're actually trusting. And friends, Psalm 52 encourages us to develop trust in the Lord and nothing else. I don't trust in my strength. I don't trust in the finances. I don't trust in smarts or plans or any of those things. We trust in the Lord. Then, when we start there, we see where His steadfast love directs us to go which may be any number of things. But it begins with trust in God's love. We don't worry. We don't fear. We'll talk about that in our family service, how God's perfect love casts out our fear. And then as we trust in His love, we consider what that love directs me to do. His love might direct me to love my enemies. His love might direct me to give the possessions that I've been holding on to so tightly. His love might direct me to serve with the time that I've been hoarding for myself. His love might direct me to store up treasure in heaven. His love might direct me to be content with what I have. There's any number of directions His love might take me, but we begin by trusting His love. As we close then with verses 8 and 9, here we see David giving his personal testimony. So we've started with the wicked, then David talks about the righteous and what they learn from the wicked, and he closes now with his own personal testimony. He says, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust In the mercy, and just to pause there, that word mercy is the same word for goodness back in verse 1. That Hebrew word chesed, which we've talked about, that steadfast love of God. So David closes the psalm with the same word. He's coming back to it. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. 
So this love lasts forever, and David says, I will always trust in his love. But verse 9, he turns to sort of a response. I will praise you forever, because you have done it. And in the presence of your saints, the word is loved ones, I will wait on your name, for it is good. So three responses that we see here. You see that David has this sense of joy and and provision. He calls himself a green olive tree. Maybe you don't want to be a green olive tree, but in David's mind, this was one of the longest lasting trees in the region. It lasts for centuries. And so David's looking to this green olive tree, a source of strength and joy and thriving there in the land of Israel. And not only there in the land of Israel, but David says it's actually in the house of God. And so it's near to the Lord. That's his place where he thrives. And forever and ever we'll be close to God as he trusts in God's steadfast love. Verse 9, it leads to praise. I will praise you forever in the presence of the saints. Worship. So together, God's people are praising Him. And yet, verse 9 ends with a phrase that's helpful to us. David says, I will wait on your name, for it is good. So it's like David returns to his present context, and there's Doeg and Saul still chasing him to take his life. They haven't been repaid yet for their evil act in murdering the people of Nob. And so it's like David comes back to his present situation and says, okay, now that I trust the steadfast love of the Lord, I will wait. I will wait. The name of the Lord is good. He will do what is right. I will wait. I will wait. David would wait quite a while before Saul and his men were finally put down and David received the kingdom that had been promised to him. Like David, friends, we await a kingdom. We await the day when Christ will first come to the clouds and call us to be with him. And then those years of the tribulation where God is justly punishing evil on the earth and those who reject him and then sets up the kingdom of the son of his love and we will reign with him. We await that kingdom. And in the meantime, we remember that God's steadfast love leads to eternal joy and praise. God's steadfast love leads to eternal joy and praise. And so as David looks to the future and is confident that all will be set right and he will praise the Lord forever and ever. This is not just a temporal thing. This is eternal He says, for now, I will wait. God's steadfast love leads to unending, eternal joy and praise. It's very likely you've received a phone call in the recent past with an offer to extend your car's warranty. (laughs) We live in a culture of warranties. This is why this is such a fun tactic for people on the phone to call you and uh, offer you an extended warranty. We like the sense of, you know, something being replaceable if I mess it up or if I break it. And this is why we're attracted to items with lifetime warranties, right? So I bought a, an item recently that had a lifetime warranty. Uh, it's a little spatula, right? 
Of course, they can offer a lifetime warranty on that. It costs like 50 cents, right? So it's no big deal. But yes, it came with a lifetime warranty. And so we used it for some time, flipping our eggs and pancakes and whatever else we were using our, you know, little stirring spatula for. Until one day it wore out. The, the kind of the rubber silicone on it broke and the metal started poking through and you can't have that. Then you scratch up your pan, right? So the spatula's done. But ah, I remember. Lifetime warranty. So I do a little internet search on the brand of my spatula and I look up the website and sure enough, it's right there on the website. Lifetime warranty. Just reach out, contact us, let us know and we'll replace it at no cost to you. And so... I fill out the little warranty form and send it in, and I proudly think to myself, well, this is great. I should have a new spatula in just a few days. I like this lifetime warranty. So I wait a few more days, wait a few more days, wait a few more days, no response from the spatula company. Well, that's odd. So I go back to their website, and I think, okay, well, maybe I'll email them this time instead of filling out the warranty form. So I find the customer service email, and I send them an email, and I wait a few days Wait a few days, no response. Hmm, okay, okay. Well, maybe I'll try the phone number, right? I've got to get this spatula, okay? So, uh, we, you know, we try all these ways of reaching out, no response from the company. So there may be a lifetime warranty. The trick is actually contacting them. That's, that's the trick, the fine print that wasn't written on the website. Good luck getting in touch with us. So I had to buy a new spatula. I know, I know, out or whatever it was. I don't know. So many warranties, so many deals like that are better than they actually are, right? Sounds good up front. Well, yeah, maybe I should extend my car's warranty. No, no, don't do it. It always sounds better than it actually is. These things don't last forever. Even warranties, even lifetime warranties aren't unlimited There's always that word limited in there. There's only one thing that lasts forever, and that's God and His steadfast love. And if you've trusted in His steadfast love, shown in His Son who died for you and rose again, then you look forward to eternal joy and praise with the Lord whose love never fails. It's coming. For now... We praise Him, and we wait. There will be times, even seasons, of evil that we endure. And we watch, and we wonder, like David, what's going on here? In those times, whatever it is that you face in your life, even this week, turn to the steadfast love of the Lord. Remember that He proved it in His Son, that no matter what you're seeing, no matter what you're feeling, no matter what you're facing, it cannot stop His steadfast love. His love always wins. And He will one day uphold all that is good and destroy all that is evil. He will. And we can trust Him with that. So fix your eyes on His strength. Look for His eternal good that He's working in you and through you. And wait on the Lord. Watch for His love to prevail. When betrayed by evildoers, trust 
in God's steadfast love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Psalm 52, which is such a pertinent reminder for us in our lives. We are surrounded by so much evil, and we confess often it comes even from our own hearts. We thank you first for your steadfast love, which has offered us salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. I would pray for those here today, even listening online, that may not know Jesus as Savior, may not have had their sins washed away or received the righteousness of God. May they even today place their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and experience your steadfast love. Pray for those of us who have trusted in Christ, who may be even battling sin and want to be rid of the evil in our lives. Lord, give us victory by the power of your Spirit to keep trusting your steadfast love even when we fail. And then those of us who see the evil around us, who are burdened by things done to us, by betrayal, by deception, by destruction around us, Lord, help us to look to your love continually, to remember that your steadfast love will prevail. We praise you for that. We trust your love. Your mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. So help us to trust you. Help us to rely on you and lean on you, not to trust in ourselves, but to look forward to the eternal joy and praise in your steadfast love forever. And so we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.